So the, um, the, yep, there it is. There's the, the theme for tonight, or the title for tonight. It's Navigating the Messiness of Relationships. We're talking about drama people, that's right. Spill the tea, Chris! <laughs> Relational drama. What's that? Spill the tea! Oh, okay. <laughs> you have to fill it in later. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Relational drama. I mean, I know you've lived it. You have caused it. The social media apps on your phone just fuel the fires of it. Right? Family members and friends have sucked you into the relational drama vortex. For many of you, middle school was about surviving relational drama and coming out alive on the other side. You're here, so congratulations. Um, even if you're the most laid back, like conflict-averse person here, I know you are not immune to relational drama. Why? Because you are a human being, and human beings are really good at pressing the relational drama button. Uh, that's just what we do. You know, there's this, that really famous quote by Benjamin Franklin. I think you've, most of you have heard of this. If you've grown up in the United States, right? That there, there are three certainties in life, right? Death, taxes and relational drama. <laughs> That's what he said. That's what he should have said. <laughs> Consider the movies you love. Consider the books that you read for pleasure back in the day before Princeton when you read for pleasure. <laughs> or the shows that you watch. Like, the, how does the plot or the narrative pull you in? It, it's because there's some sort of conflict in it. There's, there's relational drama in there. That's what makes them interesting to us. And that, that's what makes them connect to us. If everybody got perfectly along all the time in movies, books, and shows, then it would be boring, and somehow they would be not human. History can even be viewed as relational drama between people groups within a country or a community, or relational drama on an international scale between countries, right? But of course. And the Bible itself is, I mean, no surprise, it is no stranger to relational drama. In the opening pages, the first book of the Bible, you have parents like Jacob playing favorites with their kids, treating Joseph better than the other sons, which causes bitterness and jealousy within the family. And you know, if you were taking a like pass D PDF, pass D fail here at Princeton Parenting 101, that's a total fail. Right? <laughs> you do not play favorites with your children. Uh, Moses gets overwhelmed and exasperated with the people as he's leading them to the promised land. One of my favorites, King Artaxerxes of Persia, this is in Esther, he summons his wife, Queen Vashti, um, during this big seven-day party, and you know, it's, it's mainly because he wants to showcase her to all the guests to see how beautiful she is and how glamorous she is. And so what does she say? She says, no way. And I, I'm so proud of her for that moment. Like, like, stand up for yourself. Good job, right? And then what does he do? This is like one of the world leaders of the time. What does he do? Well, fine. We will never see each other again. Like it's just this petty, vindictive movement. It's relational trauma right there. And somehow, in this very inscrutable way, God uses that to sort of pave the way for Esther to step in as queen and to save the people of God. I and mean, you can read about it in that book. But you can almost argue that the overarching narrative of the Bible itself could be described as a drama, where there's a broken relationship between us and God and it needs repairing and reconciling. 
And all of the 66 book of, books of the Bible is just another chapter of how God, he himself, he steps into that drama. He never backs away. He never gives up. And he does what only he can do. And he does what he does. He, he repairs, he reconciles, and he resolves. And, and, and so we're told things in like Romans 5. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace being like, okay, the relational drama has ended between us and God for those of us who are in Christ. And our text tonight, it's a text full of relational drama. It's between the Apostle Paul and the people in the Corinthian church. There has been some sort of big blow up. And it's like we're being plopped down between two good friends who are now in the middle of working out a serious argument. So the passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 12 through 2, 4. Um, and, and as we turn there, this message has two steps, okay? The first step, and this will be the shorter step, it, it's what was the big blow-up between Paul and the Corinthians? Just got to look at that for a minute. And then the second step is to look at the actual text where Paul, he's going to emphasize three qualities that he has and that we need to navigate relational drama. And then we'll connect those to the gospel as well, okay? So step one, the background. So what was the big blow-up? And we're going to start with a map. <laughs> Even though this is personal, we'll start with a map because, okay, it starts with Paul's second missionary journey, uh, right? So in Paul's second missionary journey, he eventually makes his way over there to Corinth, okay? This is like 49 to 51 AD. Paul makes his way to Corinth, and when he's there, he starts preaching the gospel, and Lots of people start to believe, and God gives them a vision and says, guess what? You're going to stay here. You're going to stay here for a while. Paul ends up staying there for 18 months, which is not his typical pattern of things. Usually he moves on relatively quickly. Um, but he gets really close to the Corinthians. Um, and now fast forward. You can go to the next slide, Anika. Fast forward to Paul's third missionary journey. This is now 52 to 57 AD, so several years later. And Paul makes his way to Ephesus, which is over there in, in like on the west coast of Turkey. So there's Corinth over there in Greece. Paul's in Ephesus, and he's there for about three years. Again, not typical. <clears throat> and while he's there, Paul's informed that the Corinthian church, which is across, that's the Aegean Sea, right? Yeah. The Corinthian church is in trouble. He just catches, he, he has some, some, some letters. It's in trouble because, number one, they are confused theologically. They're moving away from what Paul originally taught them about God and about Jesus and the gospel. And then number two, they're confused morally. They're not living life consistently in line with the gospel. So Paul, he's there in Ephesus, and he, he writes 1 Corinthians, right? We're in 2 Corinthians, but he writes 1 Corinthians. This is probably around 53 or 54 AD, and you can piece this together like by reading Acts and by reading 1 and 2 Corinthians. He writes it to shepherd them through that, those theological and those moral issues. Okay? So you can read 1 Corinthians and you'll get a really good glimpse of what was going on there. And Paul also, he sends a, a young man named Timothy from Ephesus to Corinth to try to help things out in addition to the letter. All right? And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 10, how Timothy's coming. Okay? Now, takes a turn 
Unfortunately, Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians, and Timothy, they don't change the situation, which actually means it's getting worse. Right? Now, Paul decides, okay, I will go to Corinth myself. This is not recorded in Acts, but this happens. We know this because of the, the, the letters exchanged in, in the Bible. All right? He says, I'll go there myself, and I'll try to bring healing and resolution. And here's where the big blow-up occurs. Unfortunately, the meeting between Paul and the people in Corinth, it, it's somehow it's a train wreck. We don't know what happened. All we know is it ends in a disaster. And the Corinthians, they hold on to their theological errors, and they refuse to repent of the things that Paul is telling them to. And Paul was afraid, this is just going to destroy this community. This church will be no more. It will no longer be holding out for Christ. And he describes uh, th this visit as a painful visit. And you can read about that in 2 Corinthians 2. Actually, we'll read here that tonight. And he's left in anguish and affliction and in tears from this visit. So things have gone from bad to worse. And when Paul leaves this train wreck, there's an expectation that Paul will come back to Corinth. Like, when, when the dust settles. There's this expectation because Paul said he would come back. All right? And that's a really important detail. However, at some point, when Paul is back in Ephesus, he decides, I'm not going back. I'm not going back to Corinth like I said I would. Instead of making another personal visit, I'm going to write them another letter. Okay? And this letter, you would think it's 2 Corinthians. That makes sense. <laughs> But it's not. <laughs> and because Paul, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about another letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians that we don't have anymore. Okay? But this letter, it's a painful letter. He calls it that in 2 Corinthians 7 8. It's a letter of rebuke, and it's a letter of warning. Okay? So you can, and that's in 2 Corinthians 7 8, where Paul references that letter. And then Paul makes another move. He sends Titus, who's another young man, reliable young man that works with Paul, to deliver this painful letter. And, we, and, and the, the beautiful thing, well, I hope you're tracking with all this, right? The, the, I, I know this is complicated, um, as relational drama often is. Maybe Netflix ought to make it their next series out of this. Um, but finally, some good news comes. Paul sends the painful letter and Titus the Corinthians hear the letter, they listen to Titus, and they embrace Paul's wisdom and direction. And Titus sends word back to Paul of this really good news, which then moves Paul to write what? 2 Corinthians. So that, that's, that's what 2 Corinthians is. It's a response to all of that relational drama. Um, and he writes that about a year or so after 1 Corinthians. Okay. But it is not like things are all good between Paul and the Corinthians. Improved, yes, but not fully restored. There are still suspicions lingering and tensions that are out there. Such as, it's understandably, why didn't Paul come back to visit us? Doesn't Paul care about us anymore? Can we trust him? And so there are still things for Paul and the Corinthians to work through, and that's tonight's content in, in Paul's letter at, at this point of 2 Corinthians, okay? 
So now that was step one. That's the that's their background to the sort of the train wreck that happened. Now step two is what does Paul say, and the things that he says will also help us navigate the messiness of relationships, right? It's it's in some ways it's encouraging that you get to you read the Bible and there's okay, that's really messy, right? Um, and it's hopeful because well we all have messiness in our lives as well when it comes to our relationships. So step two. There are three qualities. You can go to the next slide. Thank you, Nika. So quality number one is integrity. That's the first thing that Paul mentions in this letter. So remember, the Corinthians, they're suspicious about Paul acting one way when he's with them and then a different way when he's not. And Paul brings this up in 2 Corinthians 10. Some in Corinth are accusing Paul of being, listen to this, timid, and unimpressive and weak when he's there in person. But then when he writes his letters, boy, he's bold, he's strong, and he's weighty. Okay? So somehow, as they see it, there are like two different Pauls out there. There's the Paul face-to-face, and then there's the Paul when he's far away. Two different people. And so if they were to text Paul, maybe they would include this emoji, like the Pinocchio emoji, to communicate their suspicions. Like, we think... Like in some, one of these areas, you're lying. You're not being real. And so Paul responds by saying this. This is 2 Corinthians 1, 12 to 14. Thank you, Anika. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. And we have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. He's not boasting like, okay, I'm such a great guy of integrity. This is God's grace in his life. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. My letters are not hard to understand. Don't read between the lines. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus. So Paul, he says, look, my person and my letters, they are one and the same. They're consistent. What you see is what you get. What I believe and how I conduct myself are aligned. I practice what I preach. I don't act one way with you, and then I act differently elsewhere. I don't do that. I've conducted myself with integrity and godly sincerity, he says. And now I'm going to apply this to us and our relationships. Okay, like What is integrity? It has the same root as the word integer, right? which you know, integers are whole numbers and they're opposites. Right? Thank you very much, former math teacher. <laughs> A person of integrity is whole. They don't have a divided self. You see, a divided self, what a divided self does is it morphs to fit the situation. Like, I'll act this way over here with this group of friends, and then over here with this group of friends, I'll act that way, right? So that I can fit into both groups. A divided self puts on masks to cover over what they don't want others to see. You know, I don't want people to know that I'm an angry person, or an anxious person, or a jealous person. So I have to try to project the opposite so that people think of me as a chill person or a content person or whatever. Right? 
Someone who has a divided self or a divided heart focuses mainly on, well, what are other people seeing about me? What do they see on the outside? That's my preoccupation. Whereas the person of integrity, biblically, that person is aiming to be whole, not divided by God's grace, and is focused on not what other people are seeing, but on what God sees. And therefore, they can have a clear conscience, as Paul says here. And that's the focus in Paul's text, right? Or in, in, Paul, in Paul's letter. When he's focused on what God sees. That's why he mentions the day of the Lord Jesus. When God comes in his judgment and everything is revealed, you know, well, what does God see then and what does God see now? And, and you know this. Healthy relationships depend, hang on integrity. One of the instant killers of any relationship is when you discover that somebody has been quote-unquote fake toward you in some way or other. But it's just like a dagger to the relationship. You know, I thought I knew this person, but clearly I don't. Or I, I thought I could trust this person, but now I know I can't. Paul knows this, and that's, that's why he's telling the Corinthians, like, like, the Paul that you are seeing, right, and the Paul that God sees, they're one in the same. They're consistent. Because he wants that relationship to remain whole with them. So are you a person of integrity? Is the you that people see, is it consistent with the actual you? And I know, we, sure, we struggle here. We do cover up. We do put on a good face. But, but are you growing in authenticity? Growing in your desire to be consistent in integrity? And then and here's the gospel connection. I mean, one of the first steps that you take in a Christian journey is you humbly admit to God and to others, I am a weak-willed, broken sinner who has made plenty of messes with other people, and I'm in need of a savior. I mean, that, that is like the non-negotiable starting point of a Christian journey. And that mantra has to be there. It has to be always there on the journey, whether it's your second step of the journey or your thousandth step of the journey. And then if you pretend that you're better than you really are, either by covering up or justifying your messiness, or by putting on a mask to suit the occasion, you go backwards in that gospel journey. You go backwards in your relationship with God. Because see, the gospel says, I've been forgiven, I've been embraced by God, not because of what I've done, but, be but because of what Jesus has done for me. And so my faith is not in who I am or what other people see, my faith is in who he is. So you don't have to pretend anymore. The gospel sets you free from that. We have been set free from the need to be a pretender. And that's why we can be set free to, to live lives of whole shalom. That's what the word shalom is. It's wholeness, integrity. So that's the first quality that Paul mentions. The second quality is loyalty. And the, the Corinthians, they're... Again, they're confused, like, why didn't Paul visit us again? He said he would, and he didn't. And so they're discouraged, they feel slighted. Um, and yeah, so like, you know, if it's 21st century, like, Paul has ghosted 
the Corinthians, right? <clears throat> so maybe they would have texted something like that too. Like, you know, what's going on? Come on, girl. So he's Paul, he responds to this and he, infirm, he affirms his unwavering loyalty to them. So this is 2 Corinthians, this is the very next part, verses 15 following. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. So this, these were his travel plans. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no. There's a divided self, right? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you and for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So through here, and we're not going to go through this because we don't have time, but... Paul, he, you heard, he insists, verse 17, I, I'm not being fickle, right? He says, I, I'm being faithful. God is faithful, and I have been faithful to you, to you, just like God, but I preach the gospel to you with, with, with Silas and also with Timothy, and I will continue to be faithful to you. And he says in verse 23, I didn't return to you because I wanted to spare you. Right? And I, if I could distill what I believe Paul to be saying here, it'd be something like, like this, like, look, Corinthians, my beloved Corinthians, our last get-together was a train wreck. And it is precisely because I am fully committed to you and fully committed to your good that I thought it best not to risk that kind of disaster again, especially so soon. So don't take my absence as a sign that my commitment to you has evaporated. It's just the opposite. Take it as a sign that I'm committed to you now more than ever. Don't take my absence as a sign of indifference or callousness toward you. Take it as a sign, an expression of genuine love. And, and, and connecting this to us, like it, relational drama, it, it is a given in all human relationships. And, and because of that, loyalty, I mean, this is the, Paul's talking about, I, I've been loyal to you, and I will continue to be loyal to you. Maybe I haven't loved you in the way that you imagine I should love you, but I am loyal to you. Relationships, like for them to thrive and survive, loyalty has to be there. The relationship that does not have loyalty cannot, it will not survive. And loyalty says, I'm with you no matter what, and I'm with you no matter what you do. I might be rightfully upset with you or angry with you. I might have to say tough things to you. 
And you can also flip that around. Some people might have to say some tough things to you, right? I might not be satisfied with you, and it might insist that you need to change certain destructive behaviors, but loyalty says, I am with you and I am for you. That's what loyalty is. It is so easy to be loyal to friends or to family members when everything is just going great, right? But who can't be loyal in that situation? But true loyalty is revealed when the relational drama comes and the volume gets turned way up, right? Or it's revealed that there's no loyalty there. And this mark of loyalty ought to be, it should be distinct in the Christian community, a community like this. And here's what I mean. You might come into a Christian community and expect, okay, relationships ought to be different here. These people claim to know God, right? So how they relate to others ought to reflect God and his love. And yes, I think that's an accurate expectation. The Christian community ought to reflect the love of God. But if that expectation leads the same person to think, these people are going to love me perfectly, they won't hurt me, they'll never fail me, well, then that person is in for a rude awakening. And, or if you think, look, I'm a Christian, and my relationships with other Christians will always be mutually encouraging and free from challenges or messiness, then you're in for a rude awakening too. Like, while God's love and his spirit in us ought to transform the way we relate to each other, and it ought to reflect the love of God for us into the lives of others, we will still fail. It happened between Paul and the Corinthians, and it will happen to you and to me. But loyalty is that thing that steps in and says, I remain committed to you despite the failure. And if you really think about this, every single sphere that you swim in, every sphere, it, it, it has had and it will continue to have relational failures. It, it, it could be a five-minute failure, it could be a 10-year failure. So, like, immediate families. I'm just going to go through some of the spheres. Immediate families, check. Right? Extended families, double check. <laughs> Friend groups, check. Dorm rooms, advisory groups. Mm. <laughs> there are some RCAs in here. Yeah. Right? I know. University departments, check. And you, and you know that because you're thinking as a student, but guess what? It happens on the faculty and the administrative level too, there's trauma. It's not just the students in the department. Right, your church, your Christian community, your extracurriculars, the work, your workplaces. Like, there's, there's nowhere you can go. I mean, if you were, even if you withdraw into a cave, you're still gonna have conflicts with yourself. There's nowhere you can go <laughs> and not have conflicts and relational drama with other people, right? And often you're going to be the one who creates it or causes it. And the thing that ought to set the Christian community apart from all those other spheres is not that there's no drama. It's that the loyalty here is really unusual. It's different, right? You bring people together in, in, a, in a Christian group, any Christian group, they have different political views, different personalities, different educational backgrounds, different races, different cultural backgrounds, and we're seeking God together, and we're trying to learn how to love each other, trying to, how to understand each other, build each other up, and then when we fail, and we will, we work it out. 
we talk it out. We forgive as Christ forgave us. Why? Because we remain loyal to each other. Like when a corporation or an organization, this is just sometimes, this is not all the time, but this does happen. Right? When there's a challenging person that doesn't fit in, that causes too much drama in a workplace or an organization, you know, what do they do? Well, they bring in human resources. There's a whole department for this. Some of you might become human resource specialists, where you just specialize in human relational drama, right? They bring in a human resource person, and that person, when they get to a certain point, they say, you know what? Things aren't working out here. Here's a big check. This is your next three to six months of salary. Good luck finding a job somewhere else, right? There's, there, so there's loyalty in the sense of we'll pay you what we said we would pay you for the next however many months, but the loyalty gets severed and they get pushed out there. You can't do that in PCF. You can't do that in a Christian community, right? You can't say, okay, if things just aren't working out here, I'm really sorry. Like, here, here, here's a pair of PCF socks. <laughs> you know, good luck finding Christian community elsewhere. Like, you, you, you can't do that. Now, why? It's because it would betray the loyalty that God has for us. We are to reflect the loyalty that God has for us with one another. So to give up on somebody else means like, well, I, I don't care if God is loyal to me or not. Right? So that's why loyalty is it, it, such a hallmark of a Christian community. Not just relationships, but a Christian community. That is why Paul said, look, God's yes is yes. He's committed. He made a promise. He keeps it. He does not waver. He does not change. And so we're to reflect that kind of loyalty in the way that we, react, we um, relate to each other. And finally, quality number three, genuine love. The Corinthians feel like Paul took the easy way out by not visiting them. And he didn't visit them. It's not because he didn't care about them, right? Um, and, and Paul, he, he responds by affirming the depth of his love for them. This is now chapter 2, um, verses 1 to 4. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. So there it is. He changed his mind. Okay? The Apostle Paul changed his mind. He's a human being. But he had a good reason. I didn't want to make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad, but you, whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would share, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress. This is his painful letter. I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So you would think that for Paul to show genuine love to the Corinthians, of course he'd go back and just be with them in person, but he didn't do that. Instead, he felt that to love the Corinthians well, it meant giving them space, <coughs> not visiting them even though he said he would, and writing a painful letter, crying many tears, I think praying a lot with anguish of heart, and that's what's being captured here. <laughs> so to love well takes lots of strength and takes lots of wisdom. Strength and wisdom beyond what we have. And now applying it to us, genuine love, like 
genuine love, it's risky. Like if you want to be somebody who genuinely loves others, I, this is this is what you're in for. You will get hurt. You will shed tears, <coughs> anguish of heart. You will sacrifice. You'll have to put the good of the other before your own good. You'll have to fight for your tendency to make rash judgments of the other. I mean, that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were making judgments of Paul. You'll have to learn to give others the benefit of the doubt, assume the best of them and their motivations. You have to be willing to put in the hard work of, insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, it took Paul and the Corinthians like two to three years to work it out. I mean, that's just a, it's an educated guess. So like two to three years, I mean, you can go on another day or another week or another month with that difficult person, that difficult person for you to love. You will have to forgive and you'll have to receive forgiveness. This is what genuine love does. And the gospel connection, I mean, it's, it's very straightforward. We love that way because God first loved us that way. The Apostle John said it so straightforwardly. He said, Beloved brothers and sisters, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How can we love others well through the ups and downs and the twists and turns of all relationships? You recognize that the genuine love that God has for you, and you believe it, and then you cherish it, and you remind yourself of it, and you remind others of it. And then you love others with that same kind of love that you have received. And this is one of God's main purposes for you in life. You, you might not know what you're doing yet this summer. You might not, not you don't, do know what you're doing after gradu graduation, or where you're gonna be. Um, and it's hard living with those kind of uncertainties because you care a lot about them. But I can tell you with 100% certainty that no matter where you go, no matter what work you do, God calls you, this is your purpose, this is your mission, God calls you to love others just as he has loved you in Christ. That is a mission that you know you can walk in with great certainty, um, even with the uncertainty of your future horizon. So integrity, loyalty, and genuine love. This letter, 2 Corinthians, it, it's about God's strength in our weakness. And in our weakness, and we often display weakness in our relationships, but it's in the messiness of relationships. God truly can be glorified. His strength will be there. And to set us free from masks and pretense and to be people of integrity, to imitate his faithful, unwavering loyalty toward others, and then to love others as he has loved us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for relationships that you're the creator of that. You are a relational God, and it delights you to be known by people in your creation. And, and you have made us in your image, and, and, and so we are made for relationships.
to be in a relationship with you and to be in relationships with others. And if this is one of life's great gifts. Uh, but, I mean, you know, it, it, it's also at times messy and difficult. So we put ourselves before you tonight, and we invite you to change us, to transform us by your grace, by your spirit, so that we might be a blessing to those around us. That we be people characterized by integrity, loyalty, and genuinely, genuine love. And, and Lord, as you change us, I pray that we, by the way that we live our lives, would point others to you, to your beauty, and to your glory. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.